0: Welcome to Reitman for the Job, where we go really in depth on Ivan Reitman's movies, particularly if we're talking about his most successful one, Ghostbusters. Yes, this is our grab bag episode. I'll be covering music, marketing, how well the movie did in theaters, and lots and lots of trivia that I don't think really fits into a narrative. So let's get to it. More than ten years ago, I don't know, in 2008, my online pal James Etock put out a magazine called Serial Geek. It was a beautiful magazine focusing on 1980s cartoons. One of the articles I wrote for him was on the real Ghostbusters episode, Collect Call of Cthulhu. It was a fun episode written by Michael Reeves, where the Ghostbusters bump into elements created by horror and science fiction author H.P. Lovecraft, and the Busters battle his most famous monster, the unpronounceable Cthulhu. And seriously, listeners... Don't write in to tell me I'm saying Cthulhu's name wrong. The gag is that no human is really supposed to be able to say it properly. Anyway, anyway, this leads me to talk about a big element of the Ghostbusters movie that rarely gets mentioned. That there are big Lovecraft ideas in the film. We all know Dan Aykroyd is seriously into the paranormal, but I wish someone would ask him about his familiarity with Lovecraft. But who was H.P. Lovecraft? Born in Rhode Island in 1890, I have been known to describe Howard Phillips Lovecraft as a racist wiener. Yeah, that's the first roadblock with his work, everybody. The guy was racist. An anti-Semite, too. Also, he didn't think very highly of women. A real winner, this guy. The reason I call him a wiener is because it's hilarious. He lived in New York for a while and he'd write to his friends saying, Oh, it's so scary here, There, there are Asian and black people around the neighborhood just living their lives. This loser couldn't handle non-white people just being around. Huh, now that I think about it, some things have never changed in the world. Seems we're still having these kind of problems in society today. Eh, yeah. I call Lovecraft a wiener, a nerd always frightened by everything and anything a little different than himself. You can read up on him more if you like. But his work. He was an atheist and he expressed his unease and depression in the face of a universe that does not care if humanity lives or dies, well, he expressed his nihilism with a mythology of elder and alien gods that also did not care about humans. Lovecraft's most famous monster, a creature that you might run into a stuffed toy in a comic book store or as a joke online, is Cthulhu. Cthulhu, who, by the way, isn't even supposed to be the largest or most powerful being in Lovecraft's stories, But Cthulhu is a giant sleeping for ages at the bottom of the sea. It both has roughly a human form, tentacles like an octopus, wings and dragon elements, but it's also supposed to be so big and so scary, nobody can adequately describe or sketch it, and to see it in person would drive you mad. Those are the kind of ideas we're dealing with in H.P. Lovecraft's stories. How does that fit into Ghostbusters? See, I'm sure Dan Aykroyd has either read Lovecraft himself Or at least had a familiarity with these ideas in general. I mean, Dan Aykroyd was also the guy who loved the work of Isaac Asimov, so when they were filming at 55 Central Park West, and Isaac Asimov showed up, Aykroyd was delighted, until Asimov, kind of rightly frankly, told them all off for backing up traffic all over Manhattan. So I think Dan Aykroyd knows his science fiction authors. But anyway, Ghostbusters. At the end of Ghostbusters, there's an extra-dimensional being about to destroy all of civilization. I mean, that's not a ghost story. Ghost stories and ghost encounters are more like the library ghost in the movie. Weird stuff happening at a location, people seeing lights and an apparition. This bigger supernatural threat, it comes from the mind of a writer, H.P. Lovecraft. So what are some Lovecraft connections in Ghostbusters? First off, their equipment. We'll put aside ectoplasm for a moment and talk about it later this episode, But think about it, if you were just a person living throughout most of human history, if you were alive at any point before the 20th century, and someone asked you what you knew about ghosts, what would you say? Would you be like Ray Stantz and say it's a manifestation of psychic energy and has a body made of something? No, you'd say it's a ghost, it's a spirit. As far as you know, it has no body. Well, uh, what are the rules to ghosts? How do their telekinesis work? What happens when you pass through a ghost? Hey, I don't know science guy. It's magic. It's a freaking ghost. I don't know how ghosts work. Bunch of nerds. The point, the point. Supernatural researchers eventually thought to ask these questions, but also, in fiction, in the 1920s, H.P. Lovecraft figured, hey, if ghosts were real, they must have some sort of physical form, and if they have a physical form, there must be a way to zap it. Yeah, that's the relevant bit for Ghostbusters. Zapping. In Lovecraft's story, The Shunned House, from 1924, two doctors jerry-rig a device that zaps a malevolent ghost. That sounds familiar. What else? Dreams in the Witch House, from 1932. This was a thing that Lovecraft liked to do a lot. He describes a room with impossible geometry. It's not a three-dimensional space, so if you look from inside this room, it doesn't make sense. It's such a cheat when writing a story go, hey you guys, There was this room, and it was, like, really haunted. You don't even know. And it was so scary and so weird. Guys, guys, the geometry on this room didn't even make sense. If I tried to draw you a picture, I couldn't even do it because this room, like, had an extra dimension to it. Man, what a scary room. I mean, okay, that's fun, Mr. Lovecraft, but it's also cheating. That was his usual trick. There was this scary thing, and it's impossible to show, And if I did show it to you for real, you'd probably die. All his stories are like that. Ahem, anyway, this story. Dreams in the Witch House is about a lodger renting out this impossible room. He has dreams of a witch and her familiar who used to live there. Only towards the end is it revealed that the impossible room is a gateway to another reality. Another dimension where the witch still lives. Shades of the Shandor building in Ghostbusters with its gateway to Gozer's realm. What is it Ray says in the movie? It's a huge, superconductive antenna that was designed and built expressly for the purpose of pulling in and concentrating spiritual turbulence. You know, haunted places have been a cultural idea for thousands of years, but the idea that you could build some weird construct bridging to the afterlife or to another reality, that's pure Lovecraft. Speaking of the Shandor building, Ivo Shandor himself, Lovecraft's stories are filled with occult books cataloging monsters and demons. It's clear the fictional Necronomicon and Tobin's spirit guide are supposed to be similar tomes, with the Necronomicon describing Cthulhu and Dagon and others, and Tobin describing Zuul and Gozer the Gozerian. Lovecraft's stories also has evil cults, doing Shandor-like things, praising these monster gods and probably sacrificing folks. I can never understand the logic of why you'd pray to any of these monster beings, but okay. Anyway, the fact that Shandor's cult is active in the 1920s, the same time Lovecraft wrote most of these stories, is a good indication that the Ghostbusters are fighting Lovecraftian things. Finally, the big one at the end of the movie. So the gate is opened, and the extra-dimensional Gozer comes to Earth. Honestly, Gozer just shows up as a woman. Gozer should probably be something impossible to understand, but eh, this is a movie, and a comedy at that, so we need something to represent this threat. But here, the Ghostbusters can't beat Gozer. It's way too powerful for them. And then Gozer really just gets to the point. It's not a woman. It's not any one thing in our reality. So now the Ghostbusters get to choose the form of... The Destructor. This is a super Lovecraftian concept. Remember, if you ask someone what a ghost is, they'd say it's a spirit. Gozer isn't a ghost. Gozer is a god, and an unknowable, destructive one at that. Supernatural theorists never really approached concepts like that. This is totally a comedic take on Lovecraft's giant monsters. For Cthulhu, it has a general set form, but it's so huge and so awful a human can't comprehend it. Lovecraft described dozens of horrors that might have one animal feature, but is otherwise a swirling mass of energy. To give you one example, the Dunwich Horror from 1928. That's one of his famous ones. I'm spoiling the end for you, but the Dunwich horror turns out that an extra-dimensional being left behind its spawn on Earth. But its children still aren't entirely of our universe, so they're often invisible. But once one is wounded, the thing is best described as a giant, grotesque worm made out of toxic bubbles. Just think of these bubbles not as soap held together with surface tension, but ugly, fleshy bits of reality that are just barely holding together on Earth. Such a wild idea. Again, don't even focus on the description Lovecraft gives. The whole point is really to expand your imagination, to think of something so horrible that it has no definite shape on Earth. And isn't that what Gozer is, only turned into a joke? Gozer isn't really a woman, and it isn't really the Marshmallow Man either. Gozer just needs to be something in New York to step on these puny humans. So Ray accidentally turns it into something from his childhood, something that could never, ever possibly destroy us, Mr. Stay Puft. So that's really my argument, that Dan Aykroyd was looking at Lovecraft's story elements when crafting Ghostbusters. And I'm picking on Dan Aykroyd specifically because the Marshmallow Man, so I'm guessing the gag that Gozer has no real body in our universe, that gag was in his version even before Ivan Reitman and Harold Rama stepped in. So I think Dan Aykroyd has a familiarity with Lovecraft's stories. If anyone ever gets a chance, please ask him about it. It's time to talk about music. And hey, this is actually a little bit easy. Rather than me go over it a lot, someone has already done a better job covering this. David W. Collins is a musician, among many other things, and he hosts a podcast called The Soundtrack Show. It's a very good podcast, and you should check it out regardless, but definitely listen to his two-parter on the music of Ghostbusters. That's from October of 2018. Collins split it up into Elmer Bernstein's orchestral score, Then the pop songs added, including Ray Parker Jr.'s song, Ghostbusters. Again, that's the soundtrack show by David W. Collins. So I don't need to talk as much about all the great music in Ghostbusters, but here are a few highlights, including my own thoughts. You know, after I watched Heavy Metal and Space Hunter, I think it's fortunate now that Bernstein had been trying out the own Martinot, that spooky-sounding instrument. When Ivan Reitman told Bernstein that they were doing a comedy involving ghosts, I think Bernstein must have seen this as the perfect opportunity to really incorporate that instrument again. Bernstein's mind definitely drew a connection between Ghostbusters, this modern sci-fi and haunted comedy, to all the B-movies of the 50s that used the theremin, a similar sounding instrument. Movies like The Day the Earth Stood Still and The Original Thing from Another World used the theremin to convey an otherworldly sound. Heck, Bernstein himself used it in the Ten Commandments, what with the angel of death descending on Egypt in the form of green smoke. This begs the question, why is a theremin or an onmartinot associated with eeriness? Why are they the spooky sound, to the point where it's often a cliché in movies and TV? Here's my explanation. These instruments are in the uncanny valley for sound. Depending on the frequency, you can often recognize that these are electric instruments, but on sustained notes, they resemble string instruments. But then, then most unsettling at all, you will sometimes get a sound that's very close to a human singing voice. Look, I'll test you. Can you identify what this is? Was that a voice, a string instrument, or something else? Yeah, yeah, I know, I'm being unfair here. I had to pick something short to confuse you. Let's listen again. That was a theremin. Yeah, I was being mean to you and picked something really short that didn't have an obvious sign of being electric. But let's try another. Was that easier? Sounds like a voice, right? But if it's a human singer, it sounds a bit off in brief moments, right? One more time. Is it a bit strange in moments? Well, you will be surprised to learn... I just did the same thing again, and that was a theremin again but if you even noticed it, you've got to admit it's close to a human voice, right? That's what's unsettling about a theremin or Homme Martineau. They're in this uncanny valley of resembling the human voice at times, but you know it's not quite there. And here, Elmer Bernstein decided to base a lot of his music around the Homme which is an inspired choice, I think. Really quickly, just so we're all familiar with the Homme Martineau, it was developed in 1928 by a French man named Martenot, oddly enough. In addition to being a musician, he was a radio operator in the First World War, and noticed you might be able to get music out of the accidental noises you get on the radio, interference or unwanted sounds turned into music. In its user-friendly forms, the Martineau looks like an organ. So you play it like an organ or a piano, but there's also a metal wire strung in front of the keyboard with an electric current. If you take a metal ring and run it along the wire, you can manipulate frequencies and get haunting sounds. It also has multiple speakers, including one with a metal face to really become a gong so that you can get metallic percussion. Another speaker has strings set up. Rather than use a bow to move over the strings, or a piano hammer to strike at them, the vibrations from the own Martinon itself will make certain strings resonate, so you can get an eerie electric sound and a real string instrument playing the same time. While a theremin is that pure, eerie, electrically generated sound, and On Martinot really crosses over into all these other types of instruments, so you can get really interesting combinations. It really merges all these different ideas of what music is. Speaking of the Homme Martinot so much, Ghostbusters fans should really learn about the person playing the instrument. Let's talk about English musician Cynthia Miller. By the way, that's spelled like Millar with an A, but she pronounces her name Miller. But yes, English musician Cynthia Miller was friends with and worked with Elmer Bernstein, and when they learned about the Homme Martinot, he asked her to train to use it. Ever since she mastered it, Cynthia Miller has become the world leader in playing the Homme Martinot. She's played the Tarangalila Symphony many times, probably the most famous symphony that prominently features the instrument. And if that name sounds familiar, Tarangalila, the Futurama character with one eye is named after this symphony. Try googling it. Tarangalila is a wild and strange-sounding symphony. But Cynthia Miller has played in symphonies around the world, and many movie scores. The ones I'm most familiar with happen to all be composed by Elmer Bernstein again. Airplane, The Black Cauldron, My Left Foot, Canadian Bacon. Bringing it back to Matt Groening for a moment, she's played for Futurama. That's also Cynthia Miller playing Léon Martineau for the Treehouse of Horror episodes of Simpsons. That's loads of fun! That's from Treehouse of Horror 5, by the way. Google Cynthia Miller, that's M-I-L-L-A-R, and listen to her play and explain her craft. Also, if you haven't clued in, Elmer Bernstein and Cynthia Miller were really good friends, and it sounds like they had a really close teacher-protege relationship. She's the featured pianist in his final film score, Far From Heaven, in 2002. We must press on. Another important instrument in Ghostbusters is the Yamaha DX7 synthesizer. This baby was brand spanking new in 1983. It featured FM synthesis sound. To really reduce it down, to the point where I'm almost doing it a disservice, it made sense for Bernstein to employ the DX7 because it was kind of like a digital equivalent of the analog on Martinot. You could get percussive sound, mimic all kinds of instruments modulate pitch just as you would with the on-martineau. When you hear the on-martineau a lot in the score, DX7s are often accompanying it, sometimes just making weird noises, other times taking over. Here's a good example from a track called Meeting 2. Listen for the sustained, warbling organ-sounding notes. That's the DX7. And again, more research for you. Google the DX7 for why it's so important to music. The instrument is one of the key sounds of the 1980s. And hey, tying everything together, a lot of pop songs and Ghostbusters use synths as well, though I don't think any of them got to use the fantastic DX7. It was so new and expensive in 83, but there's Magic by Mick Smiley. That really uses synthesizers. Also, Ray Parker Jr.'s own Ghostbuster single. He did not use a DX7, but listened to the synths. Hey, video games can sometimes help us out. The game LEGO Rock Band in 2009 had to isolate the instruments. A person on YouTube named pukadude 42 recorded the track without Ray Parker Jr. singing. Here's his Ghostbuster song, just with the synths and a bit of guitar at the start. It's obvious listening to it isolated that those were all synthesizers. Even the horns, you might think, well, was that a real horn put through a filter or something? No, it's just another synth sound, just mimicking horns. I've heard orchestras cover the Ghostbuster song, and that's always fun, but you can tell it doesn't quite have that oomph. You need those electric synth sounds, not real woodwinds and brass. And there you go, synthesizers tie a lot of the orchestral and pop songs of Ghostbusters together. Just a few tidbits here. We'll cover Sigourney Weaver being cast as Dana Barrett next episode. Early on, Dana was written to be a model, but Weaver suggested Dana could play in the New York Philharmonic. So you see her with a cello case, and would you know it, Elmer Bernstein centers Dana's theme around a cello and the On Martinot. You can tell I love this piece. It says a lot about Dana's character, too. There's the sophisticated sound of the cello, but also this more unearthly, supernatural sound of the own Martineau. It's great. Elmer Bernstein knew how to express the ideas of Ghostbusters in music. By the way, Maurice Martineau, the creator of the instrument, was primarily a cellist outside of his new creation, like Dana Barrett. It's pretty fitting to put these two instruments together in Ghostbusters. Meanwhile, the Ghostbusters themselves are much less sophisticated. They bump around, also with the on Martinon, plus a piano. I pointed out that Bill Murray was represented by a honky-tonk piano in stripes, so I wonder if Bernstein kept that idea running and gave Bill Murray a piano instrumental for Ghostbusters. <laughs> didn't mention beforehand, but the one extra, crucial instrument in Bernstein's theme for the guys are the tubas. BOM, boom, The guys are frumpy, bumbling around, running into library ghosts and not sure what to do once they meet a ghost. Then there's the piano, their main instrument. The song sounds like it's almost always ending up back in the same spot, like the guys bump, bump, bump around, doing their thing, but musically end up back in the same spot, unresolved. Cutting ahead a little later. Like Dana, the Ghostbusters brush up against the supernatural, with the own Martinon playing over top of their piano. When the strings come back in, like at the end, they're often pizzicato, being plucked. Unlike the sophisticated Dana, the guys don't even get traditional string instruments played normally. Their strings are short and kind of funny. I can't go through the entire score, my very last point on it. In Dana's apartment, Bill Murray walks in and does that little trill on the piano.
1: I hate this. I like to torture him. That's right, boys. It's Dr. Venkman.
0: Definitely an ad-lib. Well, all through the movie, pay attention to when the music briefly stops and you hear a piano trill. I'm pleased to say that I figured this out on my own. Here's an early scene. Sorry, this isn't your lucky day. I <laughs> no. uh,
1: Um. Wait, yeah. Uh, um, I, 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 get a little tired of this.
0: And here from the library stacks. Listen, you smell something. Elmer Bernstein dropped these little playful piano trills around the movie, and all quite possibly inspired by Bill Murray doing that in the one scene. I caught that independently, so I was delighted when David W. Collins also pointed it out on his podcast. Let's jump to the soundtrack. Speaking of eerie sounds, it's appropriate that even a lot of these songs have eerie effects, including Ray Parker Jr. sliding his guitar strings, or his song cutting out in the middle so we can hear weird ghost noises. But let's talk about some other songs first. One of the spookiest Coolest songs is "Magic," credited to Mick Smiley. Really, Mick Smiley, Cipolla. It plays in the movie when the containment unit breaks open and all the ghosts fly over the city as colored lights. It's so perfect you think it was written for the movie, but nope. Mick wrote this love ballad. You can hear the ballad on the soundtrack itself, where he sings to a woman that their love might really be magic. In an interview conducted by Medium writer Abraham Reisman in July of 2016, Mick says his producer Keith Forsey, Suggested they change the ending so it wasn't so much of a ballad, try to change it up some. What Mick did was almost create an entirely new song, with a lot more synthesizers and this dangerous, unsettling sound. You hear Mick's voice in the background moaning at times, not in a sexual way, but where it fits perfectly like a ghoul rising out of the grave. Strangers. That's a real standout. On the downside, it sounds like Magic had the potential to be a single, but the song Ghostbusters hit it big, and then the busboy single, Cleanin' Up the Town, didn't do nearly as well, climbing to 68 on the billboard. Arista Records, that's Columbia's record label, Arista didn't have as much confidence in the rest of the songs, so I believe Magic never got any radio play. Interestingly enough, there actually is a music video for Magic that you've probably never seen. Google Mick, Smiley, and Magic, and you can find it. It's a nice enough video, but has no footage from Ghostbusters. I wonder how it came together, because in interviews, Mick makes it clear Arista just gave up on the idea of promoting him or this song. Maybe this video was put together by his producer, Keith Forsey. But I just mentioned another song, The Busboys' Cleanin' Up the Town, one definitely written for the movie. It mentions the Ghostbusters, the ectomobile. Frankly, it tells the entire story of the movie in very general terms. That the Ghostbusters came and saved New York. They even have the word slimers in there, repeating a word Ray Stantz mentions in the movie when he's showing Winston the containment unit. A bit about the busboys real quick. They were formed in the late 70s and all lived in LA. There's a YouTube interview with lead singer Brian O'Neill in 2018. O'Neill says Paramount hired them to play a band in the movie 48 Hours, and they performed some songs on its soundtrack. Well, 48 Hours was Eddie Murphy's first movie, and the band and Murphy hit it off, and they partied together during the shoot. It sounds like the busboys really introduced Murphy to living and partying in L.A. Eddie Murphy really liked the guys. In January of 83, so while Dan Aykroyd was working on the Ghostbusters script, Eddie Murphy had the Busboys come on Saturday Night Live, and they even sang together. Later that year, Murphy went on his delirious stand-up tour, including his recorded performance in Washington, D.C. The Busboys was Murphy's opening act, and you can see them briefly at the start of the delirious recording. I say all of this just to point out that I think a lot of Ghostbusters fans are aware of the band, but might not be aware of the Busboys' close connection to Eddie Murphy, and thus kinda the Saturday Night Live crowd. I'm pretty sure someone at Columbia, or maybe one of Ivan Reitman's colleagues, was thinking, okay, this is kind of a Saturday Night Live movie. Kinda. Definitely a comedy. Big but affordable names are always a plus. Bands and musicians that are cool? Hmm. Hey, Eddie Murphy leans on the busboys a lot, and they were in 48 Hours. Let's get them to do a song for Ghostbusters. I'm sure that was the general thought process there. Also, real quick... I'm sure it's just an accident, but I think cleaning up the town also worked out thematically because it uses a lot of piano, and not just a keyboard, an actual acoustic piano, just like how Elmer Bernstein was using a piano to represent the Ghostbusters. I'm sure this wasn't coordinated, but I find it neat, and thematically it ties the score and this song together, just like the synths actually tie the score to Ray Parker Jr.'s song a bit. For this song, Clean It Up the Town, we're introduced to the guys and they go to the library, and as soon as the librarian ghost scares them, the opening to this song plays with the piano. It plays again when Janine gets their first call and we see Ecto-1 roar out of the firehouse. So it's neat. Even in the pop songs, the Ghostbusters are represented by synths, like in Ray Parker Jr.'s song, or by piano, even in the Busboys song. And Clean It Up the Town also has a music video, with some clips from the movie, It's cute. It kind of seems like the busboys go to a haunted room, honestly, where their instruments move on their own and sexy ladies vanish on them. There's one other cute, bizarre aspect to the video. If you know David Letterman, he'd often have an older guy named Larry Bud Melman show up. The gag was always that there was this unassuming little old man, and they'd dress him up as something goofy sometimes or just cut to him for a non-sequitur, or when the Berlin Wall came down, they had him on a wire and used him to smash through a fake wall on set? Anyway, that guy, real name Calvert DeForest, plays the busboy's agent at the start and the end of the video. He's cute even today in that bit, but back in the 80s, you'd understand the gag that Bud Melman is inexplicably the busboy's agent. Okay, the big one, everybody. I suppose I could devote an entire episode to Ray Parker Jr., but he is working on a biopic about his life. Keep an eye out for who you're gonna call coming... someday. I don't feel like covering his life point by point when he's going to do a better version in his own words someday. So the short version. Born in 1954, Ray Parker Jr. grew up in Detroit. And hey, a small world, he grew up in the same neighborhood as Casey Kasem did a generation before him. Google Casey Kasem if you don't know who he is. Among many other things, he's the radio DJ during the montage of the movie when Ray Parker Jr. is playing. Ray started his musical career early and played for Stevie Wonder when he was still a teenager. Stevie Wonder could play just about everything except for guitar, so he taught Ray how to lay down tracks, playing all the instruments himself. This would be a super valuable skill years later when Ray would record Ghostbusters all on his own. Ray worked with a lot of big stars, and from 77 to 81 headlined the band Radio. As in, his name, Ray-dio. Eh. So you probably know the gist of the Ghostbuster song. Ivan's team was feeling around for pop songs to go into the movie, some which they commissioned, like the Busboys, and others they happened upon, like Mick Smiley's Magic. Ray Parker Jr. was suggested, and they brought him in to see some footage of the movie. Let's get to the elephant in the room. Huey Lewis's I Want a New Drug, a hit from January in 1984, so the same time the Ghostbusters movie was in production. So, did Ray Parker Jr. steal I Want a New Drug? Yeah, almost certainly. But I also think it was entirely unintentional. Parker has told the story thousands of times. His requirements were to make a catchy song that featured the name Ghostbusters a lot, and they needed this in two days. Again, remember how quick this production was, but that was still a lot to ask of an artist. But here's the bit Parker usually leaves out. From Esquire, February of 2014. An oral history of Ghostbusters. Here's Ivan Reitman, quote, We kept looking for a song for the montage in the middle of the movie. I was a big Huey Lewis fan, and I put in I Want a New Drug as a temp score for screenings. And it seemed to be a perfect tempo, and we cut the montage to that tempo. When it was time to mix the movie, someone introduced me to Ray Parker Jr., and he comes back with a song called Ghostbusters that has basically the same kind of riff in it. But it was a totally original song, original lyrics, original everything. End quote. There you go. I think both Ivan and Ray are leaving out the crucial bit that they must have brought Ray in and screened the montage for him with that temp track. Ray always talks about seeing the part with the phone number and that inspiring him, but I think he just neglects to mention he heard I Want a New Drug over the montage. He's seen a bit of Ghostbusters, saw the energy they wanted, they told him he had two days. Yeah, it's no wonder that the song ended up being too similar to I Want a New Drug. There's a question as to whether the Ghostbusters production approached Huey Lewis himself to do a song for Ghostbusters. Some people just assume that he was definitely approached, but I don't think he's ever confirmed this. I've always found something telling. In the 1985 Huey Lewis music video for Power of Love, before he gets to the song, Lewis says to the crowd, Hollywood, finally come! Of course, Power of Love and Back in Time were his songs for Back to the Future, the very next year after Ghostbusters. I can't help but think he's making that comment in response to I Want a New Drug being the basis for Ghostbusters the previous summer. My only question is, was Huey Lewis pleased that 85 was his chance? What I mean is, him making that Hollywood comment, is he jazzed that this is the first time he was asked to do a song for a movie? Or is he trying to make up for turning down Ghostbusters the previous year. Here's his closest statement on the matter I can find. From 2001, for VH1's Behind the Music, Lewis said, quote, The offensive part was not so much that Ray Parker Jr. had ripped this song off. It was kind of symbolic of an industry that wants something. They wanted our wave, and they wanted to buy it. It's not for sale. In the end, I suppose they were right. I suppose it was for sale, because basically, they bought it. End quote. Now, I don't know, you could interpret Lewis's words there, they wanted to buy it, it's not for sale. That could literally be what happened, that Ivan Reitman or someone wanted a song from him, perhaps specifically approached him for I Want a New Drug, or Lewis could mean this after the fact. I mean, I get his point. By paying enough in a settlement, Columbia Pictures and maybe Ray Parker Jr. himself were able to buy a song with the same elements. Of course, those comments also got Huey Lewis into trouble. Here's that story. After Huey Lewis heard the Ghostbusters song in 84, Lewis sued a lot of people, including Ray Parker Jr. and Columbia Pictures. By the way, for his part, Ray Parker Jr. plays down this lawsuit because he states, probably quite rightly, that a lot of people sued him, all claiming they wrote Ghostbusters the song. So Parker claims his lawyer was handling the lawsuits and Parker wasn't even really aware that Huey Lewis was one of them. Regardless if that's true or not, Parker's lawyer and Huey Lewis's settled in 1995. Part of the settlement was that neither musician would publicly talk about the matter, which of course Huey Lewis breached with his 2001 comments I just read to you. Lewis was then sued for these VH1 comments, and for the life of me, I can't find out what became of that. Did he have to pay Ray Parker Jr. back some money for being in breach? I just don't know. And that's the saga of the Ghostbuster song. Yeah, personally, I think the phenomenally talented Ray Parker Jr. got, I guess infected is the word, with a temp song Reitman was using, then told he had two days. So he's madly working in a studio, doing the parts himself, playing on a synthesizer and a guitar, and he comes back with Ghostbusters, and, you know, not everyone notices the songs are so similar at first. Here's what's also remarkable to me. Everyone, from Dan Aykroyd to Michael C. Gross to Ray Parker Jr., Everyone caught on to the gag that it's funny to advertise for the Ghostbusters business. I've never heard Ray Parker Jr. admit he saw the montage scene with the temp track, only that he saw the part where the guys are advertising on Dana's TV set. Parker points this out in the Netflix show Movies That Made Us, for instance. He thought the ad was funny, based around needing to call this weird company over the phone, so Who You Gonna Call became central to his lyrics. Oh hey, this is interesting to me as well. So when Ray Parker Jr. was working on it for two days, he didn't actually finish the entire song. What he did was less than a minute, with himself doing all the instruments, and he handed it off to a Columbia messenger. Ray tells this a lot. He got a call from Ivan early, 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 like three in the morning one day, telling him that he loves the song and wants it expanded. I mean, it worked out well. On top of all the radio and music video play, the song was featured at the title, the montage, and the closing of the film. Ivan Reitman just fell in love with it. Some last bits, some last bits. Of course, how can you fit the name Ghostbusters into a song? Ray always says that that was the most difficult part to figure out, because you can't really rhyme Ghostbusters with anything else, or do something with it. That's why people just shout it. It's just a pop, an exclamation point, rather than a lyric that needs to rhyme with anything. And hey, more influences. People need to ask Ray Parker Jr. if he was thinking of the Disney cartoon, Lonesome Ghosts, at all. It's the one with Mickey, Donald, and Goofy as the Ajax Ghost Exterminators. He might have seen it growing up on TV. I mean, hey, that's how I saw it. The comedy of people calling Ghost Exterminators is also there at the start of the cartoon, and at one point Goofy says, I ain't as scared of no ghosts. Pretty darn close to I ain't afraid of no ghosts. Hey, More podcasts for you to listen to. In 2018, Ray Parker Jr. did his own podcast. Just search his name to find it. He's got interesting stories to tell, but, you know, I think he told most of them and then just stopped. But he tells a really good one. So after the song became a huge hit, and then he set for life, and he was a good son, he bought his parents a new house, Ghostbusters paid for the house he currently lives in, plus all of his guitars. Honestly, he deserves all of it. But anyway, early on, 84 or 85, Columbia lawyers came to him and said, Hey, how about you uh, give us the rights to the Ghostbusters song? We'd really appreciate that. Uh, And he laughs telling this story. No, he is not about to give up the rights to the song Ghostbusters. He says, hey, I'll write you another song. I'll do something else for you, but I'm keeping this song. And hey, good for him. In March of 85, Ray Parker Jr. performed the song at the Academy Awards. It's pretty goofy. Eh. Whatever, there are way more embarrassing moments at the Oscars than that. I think part of the problem is that it's the orchestra and band playing the song, rather than using his instrumentation with the synths that sound cooler. And then you have a bunch of theater people running around as ghosts and some off-brand Ghostbusters showing up. You know, Likeness writes on the movie actors aside, Ghostbusters has been surprisingly on-brand ever since the original movie. You buy a toy or bedsheets or a coloring book, and at least the equipment and the vehicles all look right. So it's weird when you suddenly get a moment at the Oscars where guys are supposed to be the Ghostbusters, but they have the wrong equipment and are dressed like old off-brand Mego toys or something. Anyway, look up Ghostbusters and Oscars yourself to check it out. Or not. Ghostbusters was nominated for Best Song that year, but lost out to I Just Called to Say I Love You by Ray's friend and mentor, Stevie Wonder. Too bad Ray lost, but I bet if he was going to lose to anyone, he's probably glad it was to Stevie Wonder. Ray Parker Jr. received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 2014. I love it that he's so positive about his song. I mean, it's not this super personal song or something he labored for months on. It's a quick single for a movie. But he's always happy and proud of it. And he's such a nerd, he even sang a version of it for his answering message. He goes like, who you gonna call? And then he shouts out his own name or something. That's so cute, just for his own cell phone. Hey, did you know that you can get from Street Fighter to Avatar? Or that it's just a quick detour from the Collector to Electra? Join us on Filmstrips, the podcast that explores all the connections you never knew existed. Each episode, David and I throw a brand new film under the microscope. Maybe it's a musical. Maybe it's a monster movie. Maybe it's terrible. The only rule is that it has to connect to the episode before. So join us each week for a brand new episode available on iTunes,
1: Podomatic, or wherever free podcasts are sold.
0: Get yourself a shotgun seat as we take a long, strange trip through the movies. Ray Parker Jr.'s hit song leads us into the music video. Hey, it's directed by Ivan Reitman, and this is his only music video. According to Paul Rudolph at the website Spook Central, the authority on many facts, by the way, including shooting locations, but according to Paul Rudolph, all the interiors of the music video in that black space were filmed at the Charlie Chaplin Studios. It was built in 1917, so it's a very historic studio in Hollywood. It was already an historic landmark by the time they filmed the video there. A lot of Chaplin's tramp movies were filmed there. Hey, a connection to when we covered The Ghostbreakers last Halloween. So, co starring in Ghostbreakers was Paulette Goddard, and she was married to Charlie Chaplin for several years. She filmed some movies with Chaplin here at the studios, including Modern Times and The Great Dictator. Huh, neat. So, Paulette Goddard star of Ghostbreakers, filmed at the same studios as the Ghostbusters music video. After Charlie Chaplin sold his studios in 1952, the TV shows Adventures of Superman and Perry Mason were both filmed there. Starting in 1967, a and Records owned it. So that wasn't Arista Records of Columbia, but it was a recording studio and had a soundstage to shoot music videos, so it made sense that Columbia would rent it out for the Ghostbusters song. Oh, and a last bit about ownership. The Jim Henson Company has owned the studio since 2000. There's a big Kermit now at the entrance dressed as the Tramp. You know, Charlie Chaplin's Tramp. That's very cute. Like everything else with the Ghostbusters racing towards completion, the music video had to be done fast. They got to the set, and I think they knew it would be Ray Parker Jr. as a ghost haunting a lady, but according to a Screen Crush article by Mike Ryan in June of 2014, the set wasn't even complete. I think someone said, uh, ideas. Neon lights and painted glass, go! The lady in the music video is Cindy Harrell, who mostly worked as a model, but acted in a few shows including Chips and the 80s Twilight Zone. But I want to share, she married Alan Horn in 1983, and they have two daughters together. Alan Horn, if you don't know, is a co-founder of Castle Rock Entertainment. In 1999, he was President and Chief Operating Officer at Warner Brothers, so he was the ultimate authority in a few movies you might be familiar with, like the entire Harry Potter series and Nolan's Dark Knight movies? Starting in 2012, he's been at Disney as co-chairman and chief creative officer. If you don't know, that means he coordinates all of Disney's various studios, including Marvel Studios, Lucasfilm, Pixar, all of it. Hey nerds, all those executive producers you get mad at? Well, Alan Horde is their boss. I'd say you could get mad at him instead, but... Honestly, just stop getting mad at executive producers in general. And he's married to Cindy Harrell here in the music video. Bah, sorry, I know. I moved the focus away from the person actually in the video. But, you know, I also like finding all these Hollywood connections. In any case, Cindy Harrell is married to Alan Horn. I find that neat. Okay, the music video. Hey, there's a guy with glasses who pops up near the start. I think the idea is he's supposed to invoke the idea of Rick Moranis' character, Lewis. I'm not crazy for thinking that, right? And here's a famous bit to the Ghostbusters music video. All the cameos. Again, according to the Screen Crush article from 2014, this was actually Ray Parker Jr.'s idea. He was concerned about looking goofy, haunting this lady throughout the video, so he was happy with any cutaways to the movie or with cameos to break it up. Ray brought in a few music friends, and he knew Ivan's people would be able to get some comedians. Let's go through them. Some folks are definitely just getting who you can, just asking around who wanted to do this. But if there's a personal connection, let's point them out. A lot of these are SNL and SCTV friends. Chevy Chase, not a Ghostbuster, but apparently getting along well enough to come for this video. There's Irene Kara, She's a singer and actor, and I'm pretty confident Irene Kara and Ray Parker Jr. already knew each other. I'm basing this partly on the fact that in Ray Parker Jr.'s next music video, 1985's Girls Are More Fun, she shows up at the start. It's very cute. By the way, Girls Are More Fun jokes about Ghostbusters and includes shots of this music video. I mean, you had your biggest success the previous year, so why not reference it? So we have Chevy Chase, singer-actress Irene Cara. Hey, John Candy. He's another pal. We'll be talking about him next episode, by the way. I love it how a few of these people act mock-scared, like Ghostbusters might really be something frightening. Candy shies away in fear. It's cute. Oh, Joe Magic tells a fun story about this. They found out where Brewster's Millions was being filmed in New York, so Magic, Reitman, and a cameraman ran over there just to film John Candy say Ghostbusters. So they get past security, lying and saying they're producers for the movie. They just weren't explaining that, you know, they weren't producers on Brewster's Millions. But they find their pal probably don't even entirely explain what's going on and just get him to say Ghostbusters. That's fun. There's Melissa Gilbert. She played Laura, the main girl on Little House on the Prairie. I can't find any personal connection between the movie and her. Hey, did you know she was also president of the Screen Actors Guild in the early 2000s? That's very cool. Okay, here's someone with a deep personal connection. Drummer and music producer Ollie E. Brown. He and Ray Parker Jr. grew up together in Detroit. They went to the same school and took music classes together. That's sweet that they both grew up and had music careers together. During his radio band days, Ollie Brown was the drummer for a lot of their studio recordings. Brown's biggest hit was Breaking, There's Nothing Stopping Us. Oddly enough, in the summer of 84, at the same time, the Ghostbusters song was a hit single. But Brown's association with Ghostbusters doesn't end in this music video. Remember last Christmas I talked about the Tahiti album, those kids singing for the Real Ghostbusters cartoon series? Ollie Brown produced that album. He helped compose and write every song in the album, and of course he did the percussion in it. In the liner notes to that Tahiti Real Ghostbusters album, there's a thank you from Ollie E. Brown to Joe Magic and Michael Gross, among other people. I can take an educated guess what happened. Magic and Gross were doing the cartoon and invited Ray Parker Jr. to work on it. Ray didn't end up taking charge of that kid's album, but he did know a colleague to recommend, Ollie Brown. So there you go, Ollie Brown is pals with Ray Parker Jr., and that got him on this video, and then he produced the cartoon album. Hey, by the way, I didn't realize until researching this, but Ollie Brown did get Ray to come in and play guitar on the cartoon song, Hometown Hero. Yeah, yeah. But back to this song and back to the cameos. The bald guy there, that's Jeffrey Tambor. Gah, that guy. He's talented. He's been in lots of good stuff. Too bad he's also a jerk. You can read up on him if you want. There's George Went. Norm! Yeah, it's Norm from Cheers. Once more from the Screen Crush article in 2014, Wendt was working at Columbia's lot and Ivan Reitman found him and asked if he'd do this cameo. They went to an office and Wendt got to hear the song. When interviewed, Wendt brought up an interesting point. Many of these actors weren't being paid for their cameos, and it sounds like they didn't mind. They knew it was a fun thing to do, and it could boost them being associated with what would become a huge movie and a hit song. But for the Screen Actors Guild, it's a big deal that you can't act for free. So George Went and probably these other actors were warned about doing cameos like this in the future. Then you've got Al Franken doing this weird saucy take to the camera. I don't really get it, but okay. He was an original Saturday Night Live writer and then a cast member, so we can see the connection there. There's Danny DeVito. I can't find any existing connection, but in 1988 he'd co-star in Ivan Reitman's movie Twins. Were Reitman and DeVito friends before this video? Did they get to know each other on this quick shoot? Hmm, possibilities, possibilities. Next we have singer Carly Simon. Again, I don't really know of a personal connection, but you never know. Her biggest hits up until then were You're So Vain and Nobody Does It Better from the James Bond movie The Spy Who Loved Me. Hey, did you know she's been writing and singing songs for Winnie the Pooh projects for years? I love that. And excuse me, just one more thing. It's Peter Falk. No, I can't do a Peter Falk impression. Is there a connection there? It could be nothing, or it could be Columbia chairman Frank Price himself. Price spent years at Universal producing television, including the NBC Mystery Theater, that introduced Peter Falk playing Columbo. This one might be a bit of a stretch because it's not like Price chose Falk or directed any episodes, but still, Price was an executive in charge of NBC Mystery Theater, produced by Universal, so that might be a connection there, or maybe it's just chance that Reitman got him for this cameo. And finally, we have Terry Garr, Mocking Fright. A great actress, she had hosted Saturday Night Live twice by this point, including once in 1980 when Bill Murray was still with the cast. She's also in Tootsie, as is Bill Murray, where she was nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. Also, also, she and Bill are mutual friends with David Letterman. And that's really all there is to the music video. Again, speaking of Ray feeling embarrassed about it being goofy, it is pretty goofy but cute when he says Ghostbusters and takes off his jacket, revealing a Ghostbusters shirt like he's Clark Kent revealing he's Superman. All the Black House interiors were done at the Charlie Chaplin Studios, then they fly over and filmed in Times Square in New York. Right before they started filming in Times Square, that's when Ray got to meet the Ghostbusters actors. I think you can tell they didn't really have much of a plan, just strut forward singing the song. Of course, Bill Murray, always raring to do something different, gets down on the ground, so Ray gives him a spin. It's funny that Ray Parker Jr. has gotten to know all these Ghostbusters people more over the years since then. Ernie Hudson was one of the people he interviewed for his podcast, and it sounds like they've become friends over the years. Also, being a real Ghostbusters kid, I'm not crazy in thinking this moment here inspired the end credits of the cartoon show, right? The Ghostbusters are triumphant and just strutting forward. I'm sure the animators must have been inspired by this bit in the music video. And hey, a final tidbit. Notice that you can clearly see a Coca-Cola ad in the background when the guys all strut. Actually, actually, there's a Sony sign above the Coke ad as well. You'd think that's almost planned, but Sony wouldn't buy Columbia Pictures for five years. That's quite a coincidence that the Ghostbusters music video would show their current owner, Coca-Cola, and their future owner, Sony. I want to talk about the Ghostbusters in marketing. In my extra podcast about him, I already spoke about Michael C. Gross and designer Brent Boats developing the No-Ghost logo for the movie. Everyone in production must have immediately realized its potential for advertising in the real world. And remember, Gross was playing around with having the title Ghostbusters in the red bar of the logo. People didn't catch it easily then when the words were descending. So that's why in the movie and in the North American marketing, the logo is actually flipped so the red stripe ascends from left to right. Okay, it's 1984 and Boss Films is furiously working on the special effects, but we need to get a role in the marketing campaign. This is something I really want to focus on. I want to know who decided to do the teaser poster. Since this is a podcast, sometime Google, Ghostbusters teaser poster. Of course, we're looking for 1984. Do you see it? It's a black background, a giant No Ghost logo, and the text, Coming to save the world this summer. I think it's fantastic. Consider how bold that is. It doesn't say, starring Bill Murray, doesn't say, from the guys who brought you stripes, just the logo on a black background and a bit of text. It's bold, it's risky with so little information. Hell, it doesn't say the title, Ghostbusters. In fact, there might be a reason why it doesn't say the name. Remember, Columbia needed to lock down the name Ghostbusters because of the existing Filmation show. They had this logo ready for marketing, They had a lot of stuff in place, but when these teaser posters went out, they might still have been working on the deal to get the name Ghostbusters for the movies. That doesn't change my opinion, though. With or without Ghostbusters on the teaser poster, it still hits you with that logo. In fact, not having a title to inform people yet, I'd say it's even riskier that they didn't have anybody's names up there to inform you who's in it. Compare this to teaser posters that approached this level of simplicity, but didn't quite manage this. Star Wars had a sort of similar teaser poster, but with loads of text about George Lucas, the man who brought you American graffiti, now, and it goes on and on, blah blah, just filled with text. The first Superman poster in 78 edges towards this simplistic idea too, but it still has a sky and a burst of colors that's supposed to be Superman flying. It's another great poster, but my point is that one doesn't go black background logo. No, the Ghostbusters teaser poster is modern, And it's confident. And you might not realize it, this started a small trend right here, of big budget movie posters using a great logo on a black background and with very little text. Think of what came after Ghostbusters ad campaign, Batman in 1989. Seriously, look at the Ghostbusters teaser poster, then look at Batman's poster. That Batman poster with the logo is fantastic, and it's basically the same idea. Then in 1990, there's the movie that copied Batman in several ways, Dick Tracy. It ended up using a variety of stylish comic images, but again, the early teaser is just a profile of Dick Tracy with a bit of yellow highlight. It's essentially the same poster again. Then there's maybe my favorite poster out of all of these, Jurassic Park. Based on the book's cover by Chip Kidd, I think it's incredible, because it's a Tyrannosaurus Rex's bones at high contrast, so it's a dead and static skeleton But with its jaws open showing all its teeth, and you can't help but imagine what it could have done when it was alive. And that's the whole point of the movie, right there in the logo. It's perfect. And that tagline, an adventure 65 million years in the making. So good! This is one of my favorite posters of all time, and again, I'm suggesting there's a string of these movie posters that really begin in 84 with Ghostbusters relying on its logo. It's great! so the Ghostbusters teaser had an impact on some of these other big movies that came out in the next several years. In fact, a Reitman production would try to repeat this same idea years later with the movie Evolution in 2001. Its teaser poster tried to make the three-eyed smiley face a thing, just as the No Ghost logo was a thing. It's not as good, but you can see what Evolution was trying to do. But let's get to the next Ghostbusters poster, with Harold, Bill, and Dan looking up at the sky. Now, I'm sure I'm not alone, but I always resented this poster because there's no Ernie Hudson, and as a kid, I always saw Winston as an equal Ghostbuster. I get it. These are the three stars. It still sucks. Eh, they still fixed this with Ghostbusters 2 poster, I suppose. Still, the image they chose here is a good one, with the three of them being dynamic. It's funny that Egon looks like the badass one, ready to fire at something. This was taken from a photo shoot on a black stage and they made composite images with the leads either in front of the cloudy sky really an effect in a water tank, by the way, or they'd use the Ghostbusters logo. Hey, Google around for Ghostbusters poster photo shoot. At some point you'll see the three guys with a little toddler walking in front, someone's kid who was there. I don't believe we've ever learned who that kid is. It's not one of the Reitman children. It could be Bill Murray's eldest son. He'd be around the right age. Oh, One more thing about that poster. Knowing the hit song today, you'd think the tagline would be Who You Gonna Call? or They Ain't Afraid of No Ghost. But of course, when designing this poster, nobody knew how big a hit the song would be. So instead, the tagline at the top is They're Here to Save the World. It's fine, right? Not bad, but not very memorable either. Well, why'd they go with They're Here to Save the World? Ah, it's a reference to Poltergeist. And that was only a few years old, from 82. I think if people see that poster today, that reference doesn't even register. Funny that for the ad campaign, they're here to save the world is a reference to the Busters and not, you know, the malevolent ghosts being mentioned in Poltergeist. Let's talk about phone numbers. Right from the script stage, the idea of the Ghostbusters existing as a business is supposed to be a joke. So it's interesting to me that everyone picked up on the idea that calling the Ghostbusters is an inherently funny idea. There's a commercial in the movie with their phone number. Ray Parker Jr. made it a big feature in his song. Heck, if we want to go back in time, calling Ghost Exterminators is a joke in the Disney cartoon Lonesome Ghosts and in the trailer for 1940's The Ghostbreakers. Everyone picks up on it being ludicrous to call Ghost Exterminators. So just like how the No Ghost logo became repurposed to advertise the film in reality, The idea of calling the Ghostbusters became a marketing feature in the real world as well. There was a 1-800 number that you could call to hear Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd banter back and forth. They use their real names, by the way, but they treat each other like they really are Ghostbusters and they're out on a job. They say they're investigating the show La Femme de Paris. I wonder if Bill came up with that idea on the spot because he'd just come back from Paris. Sometimes he has a tendency to ad-lib ideas that are on his mind, like how he'd reference The Razor's Edge for years. Anyway, it's basically a full minute of them riffing on the idea that they need to go check out the ladies in their dressing rooms, then ends with them saying you can go see the movie Ghostbusters. It's amusing, not super funny. Also, very old boys' humor for wanting to be peeping Toms at these French ladies in a burlesque show. By the way, there's a bit of a sequel to this. In 2014, for the 30th anniversary of the movie, there was another 1-800 number you could call. I tried it, and Annie Potts came on as Janine, She alternates between complaining, because, you know, that's what she does in the movie, then she thanks everyone for 30 years of Ghostbusters and says people can go to the website. Ah, it's sweet. She even makes a special mention of Egon, just to get back to the idea of them having a relationship, but also because Harold Ramis died earlier that year. Man, what else can I talk about? Movie trailers and commercials, of course. Oh, if you're really knowledgeable about the movie's music, you might notice I skipped something so we know pop songs were tried out that didn't end up in the movie or the soundtrack. This also lends credence to the theory that perhaps Huey Lewis was approached to do a song for the movie, and, you know, the follow-out of which might explain why he was game to actually do two songs for Back to the Future the next year. But anyway, anyway, there are songs that weren't used in the film, and fans aren't entirely sure about all of them. The most famous one is featured in the first teaser trailer for the movie, We don't even know who wrote or sang the song. Google Ghostbusters teaser trailer if you want to check it out. It uses a lot of the same footage as the later, regular trailer, but has this song that's not in the final movie, and it's not Ray Parker Jr. singing. Also Google Spook Central unused Ghostbusters theme songs. Paul Rudolph did some great research and put together everything that's known about pre-Ray Parker Jr. attempts at Ghostbusters theme songs. If you have the disc set of Ghostbusters 1 and 2 that came out in 2019, you'll know that one of the special things they uncovered was the Show West reel featuring Murray, Ackroyd, and Ecto-1. So in spring of each year, cinema chain owners and exhibitors have their trade show in Las Vegas. A presentation of Ghostbusters clips was assembled with an introduction by Bill and Dan where they address the audience. Ordinarily, this sort of thing isn't that special, But of course, Bill can make things special by always improvising and being so flip. Bill says that if they'll show Ghostbusters in their theaters, their kids will finally respect them. And Dan says, it's PG. I'm effing telling you, it's PG. Without, you know, bleeping the word, and this makes Bill laugh. You can watch this on the 2019 disc release, but it's actually slightly edited there. To watch it unedited, Google Ghostbusters Exhibitor Reel. You'll know you found the right one if you found a 12 plus minute video. Notice the pop music used, those early attempts at ghostbuster songs I was talking about. Columbia Pictures never officially does anything with those songs anymore because then they'd have to work out contracts and start paying the musicians on them. Also of slight interest, you can watch Ecto-1's reveal in the movie, but it's playing at its actual speed. They sped up or undercranked the footage coming out of the firehouse in the actual movie. When discussing Ghostbusters success in 1984, one of the things to really notice is that Columbia Pictures wasn't really prepared to capitalize on the phenomenon it would become. I mean, I use this for comparison too much, but it really is the best touchstone. The Star Wars franchise showed what a big blockbuster should be, and how you should make toys and books and all of that stuff to sell. Ivan Reitman and his pals got an idea that Ghostbusters would be big, but not necessarily a phenomenon, and they definitely didn't realize it would be so popular with children. They thought they would be making a Bigger Stripes, or a Bigger Blues Brothers, which this movie kinda is, but, you know, they didn't see how it could be toys in a cartoon and events at conventions. So yeah, Columbia Pictures was not prepared with merchandise. Some of the few things you could buy were mail-order bumper stickers and t-shirts. Ivan and everyone has said they spotted counterfeit Ghostbusters shirts before they saw legit ones. Speaking of Columbia Pictures not being prepared, they didn't have a fan club in operation. Star Wars, Doctor Who, Star Trek, all had fan clubs, so why not Ghostbusters? Again, it was a comedy, and the people making it probably didn't see its connection to those other sci-fi properties. Mark Lister and Jim Garvey were a couple of enterprising fans, and they contacted Columbia Pictures, paid thousands of dollars, and were able to get the rights to organizing the official Ghostbusters fan club. They got it up and running fast too, still in the summer of 84. For just under $9 US, you'd be sent a package with a patch, stickers, and a bumper sticker saying Ectomobile. One of the neatest aspects about the club was that Lister and Garvey might have been the first two individuals to treat Ghostbusters as a real company that you could apply to. When you mailed away your money, you didn't join a fan club, you were sending in an application to be a Ghostbuster. One of the items you got back was a certificate authorizing you to bust ghosts, signed by Ray Stantz. It's all a very fun idea, and one I think informed Ghostbusters fandom from then on. In 1986, when West End Games made the Ghostbusters RPG, they kept the joke going that you weren't creating an imaginary character so much as you were starting a franchise within the company. Hey, I even still have my real Ghostbusters ID card that came with my Kenner Proton Pack. I love that little purple piece of paper. Purple piece of paper, purple piece of paper, purple piece of paper. To this day... Ghostbusters clubs around the world act like they're franchises, and that there's still a head office based out of the Firehouse in New York. I think this idea would have grown naturally regardless, but I find it neat that this all started with the Ghostbusters fan club, thanks to Paul Rudolph of his amazing Spook Central website for doing the best research on the fan club. I could go on and on and on and on and on. A lot of the items for the first movie actually came out in 1985. Like, there's a telephone in the shape of the logo, with the receiver being the red bar in the middle? That's a pretty famous pre-cartoon item, but it was out in 85. A few books came out in 84, but even more of them were in 85, including the American novelization by Richard Mueller. Oh, and there was a ghost in a can. Remember, Columbia Pictures was owned by Coca-Cola. Someone came up with the clever idea to take their canning machinery, but have nothing inside it. So it has the logo, says it's a canned ghost, and you should only open it if you're a Ghostbuster. Eh, I believe those might have started coming out in some markets in late 84, but was more widely available in 85. They were usually free promotional items in some fast food chains. They did it again for Ghostbusters 2 in 89. Here are just a few final things I wanted to talk about. First up, names. Yeah, we're going to have a movie with characters named Peter Venkman, Ray Stance, Winston Zeddemore, Janine Melnitz, also Ivo Shandor, if you want to talk about a character who's only mentioned. If you haven't noticed, all these surnames don't exist in real life. You know what? It ended up being surprisingly forward-thinking for the internet, because if you search any of those names, like Zeddemore, your only results are going to be Ghostbusters characters. And I mean, why not? The movie was already going to feature a fake phone number on a TV screen, Why don't more movies set in the real world, so not Star Wars or Lord of the Rings? But if you're set in New York, why not use made-up names? Come to think of it, it's the same thing Charles Dickens did. Scrooge, Bob Cratchit, Oliver Twist, McCobb, Uriah Heap. Charles Dickens loved fake surnames that informed readers about a character. Here, I think Venk Man tells you something about Bill Murray's character. I mean, what's a Venk? Sounds sort of like a fink. Someone unsavory, maybe a liar. By the way, Aykroyd does this with names in a lot of his writing. There's the Blues Brothers, though being orphans, some of his back matter makes it clear that those guys chose their names as Blues. There's Ghostbusters, then there's Spies Like Us, where you have Fitzhume and Millbarge. They almost sound real, but nope, those are not real names either. Oh, and I keep saying this was mostly Dan Aykroyd's doing. We know his pre-Ramus drafts had characters called Venkman, Stance, and Ramsey, so he's obviously leaning on some fake names. It's telling that once Harold Ramus came on board, he got a character named Egon Spengler. Unusual for America, to be sure, but still a real name. Harold picked Egon after a classmate from Hungary. Ramus chose Spengler after German philosopher and historian Oswald Spengler, who wrote Decline of the West, a book that posits civilizations are like organisms, among many other assertions. Also, I looked into it, Spengler is not a Jewish name, but a general German name meaning metal worker. However, however, Oswald Spengler did have some Jewish ancestry. Oddly enough, not a fan of Nazis. Good for him. But back to Ghostbusters. So it's really Dan Aykroyd who likes breaking naming conventions. Also, I think he likes taking that attitude and dropping facts into the movie, but twisting them. If you're a fan, you might be familiar with Ray's line towards the end of the movie, the Tunguska Blast of 1909. If you don't know it, look it up. It was probably a meteor that blew up just before hitting the surface of Russia. The Tunguska Blast was an event that does have a scientific explanation, but was so spectacular that you could apply a paranormal theory to it. You know, like what X-Files loves to do all the time. Here's this strange event with an explanation, but now let's tell you what really happened, involving vampires and time travel and stuff. Okay, okay, but my point being in talking about this right now, the Tunguska Blast really happened in 1908, not 1909, like Ray says. So is Aykroyd misspeaking here, or is Ray talking about a separate event, or what? Before I answer that, I want to bring up a few more examples, like Ray quoting what he says is Revelations 7.12. Ray says the 6th seal opened, and then there was Judgment Day. If you hear that this quote isn't in the Bible, that's not exactly true. The translation starts pretty good, but for Revelations 6, 12. Winston adds in, and the seas boiled, but other than that, it's mostly true to the passage. By the way, Revelation 6 is where the four horsemen of the apocalypse come from. Why do I bring up this passage? I find it highly unlikely that good Catholic boy Dan Aykroyd would get this wrong. He had to look up a New Testament to write this down, but then he decided to change the number, something that we'll see as a running pattern here. Another example, and one I never see other Ghostbusters fans bring up, the Sedgwick Hotel. What of it? I mean, there's Sedgwick Avenue in the Bronx. Well, I say Dan Aykroyd cannot read the name without thinking of Henry and Eleanor Sedgwick. That's Sidgwick, with an I for the first vowel. Henry Sidgwick was the original president of the Society of Psychical Research. You know, the society that put out publications that Dan Aykroyd read as a kid? The society and publications that he says helped inspire him to create Ghostbusters? Peter Aykroyd, Dan's father, wrote about the Sidgwick's in his book A History of Ghosts. The name Sidgwick is one of the most famous names to paranormal enthusiasts. Putting Sedgwick, a single letter away, putting Sedgwick in a film about ghosts is like putting Albert Einstein in a film about physics or Oppenhammer in a film about nuclear bombs. The Wrong Brothers in a film about flying. Get it? Because instead of the right brothers, they become the wrong brothers or left, I suppose. Eh, whatever, you get it. Back to names really quick. I think Dan took this approach of taking a name or a number and twisting it just a little. He did this to his own character's name. He's named Ray Stance. All during the spring of 1983 in Martha's Vineyard, Harold Ramis' daughter Violet was calling him Uncle Roy. Get it? There's a Roy in the middle of Ack-Roy-D. I do don't think Dan could spend all his working hours on the Ghostbuster script calling himself Ray without having been inspired by his friend and co-worker's daughter calling him Roy. Hell, in a TV spot for the movie, Bill Murray once called Dan's character Roy Stance. Bill was Violet's godfather, by the way, so there was definitely times when he heard Violet call Dan Uncle Roy. There's probably Ackroyd twists I've never even caught in this movie, but a little list here, changing the date of the Tunguska Blast, changing the Bible passages number, slightly changing Sidgwick, and slightly changing the cute pet name a friend's daughter gave him? Why make these changes? I don't know, Dan's mind works in a unique way. Sometimes you just want to obscure the details or inspirations a little bit. You can call me crazy if you like, but I'm pretty sure I'm onto to something, folks. I can see the Tunguska blast date just being Dan making a mistake, but the particular of looking up that Bible verse and using one of the most famous names in all of paranormal studies, Sidgwick, I'm seeing a pattern with Dan's writing. That he likes to take some information and alter it slightly before getting it to the screen. Some real, real quick things at the end here. Ghostbusters exploded, exploded the idea of ectoplasm to the general public. Most people don't know what it was before this movie. We'll cover some details on ectoplasm next episode, but seriously, after this movie, way more people were familiar with the idea. In the late 19th and for most of the 20th century, Only spiritualists were familiar with the idea that ghosts might be slimy, but now suddenly non-believers knew about ectoplasm. Speaking of, he slimed me. Today we can watch that scene and laugh that it's such a funny reaction, but if you've grown up with a movie, you might not have even realized that sentence right there, he slimed me. It turned slime into a verb. And that's part of the joke. If Venkman was using correct English in the moment, which would be way less funny, he should say, he drenched me, or he drenched me in slime. I've pointed this out to fans before, just to illustrate some of the neat things Ghostbusters has done to wider society, and some of them didn't believe me. They just accepted that slimed has been a verb for ages, I guess? But no, think about it. If someone pours a gallon of milk on you, you haven't been milked. To milk something is when you get it from the cow. Similarly, you haven't been juiced, When juice splashes on you, you juice the fruit. This movie made sliming, slime, slimed, accepted verbs. And Ghostbusters made slime in general, not just ectoplasm, popular for the rest of the 80s and into the 90s. Of course, Ghostbusters didn't invent slime by any means. The word comes from the Latin limus, meaning mud, and Hollywood movies had slimy problems before, like the blob. But the 80s and 90s were the age of slime. There's the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And again, to drive point home about slime now being a verb, the second Ninja Turtles movie in 1991 stops everything so a character can make the exact same joke as in Ghostbusters and Splinter and the turtles get indignant.
1: 1 2 So basically what you're telling me is you guys were all uh, slimed. It wasn't slime. It was ooze and there's more of it out there. Yeah, Where? well, we're not sure
0: Eh. Yeah, that gag doesn't even make any sense if you're not already familiar with Ghostbusters at the time But we've got Ninja Turtles the stuff you can't say that on television Double Dare Toxic Avenger dozens of toys like Gak not to mention the various slimes that accompanied the Turtles and Ghostbusters and similar toys So Ghostbusters both made slime a verb and helped make it popular for over a decade. Look up the Verge article called Slimed by Adam Clare in 2017 for more slimy information. Oh, one more bit of etymology. This chick is toast. That's the first time toast is used like that. It's in dictionaries now. Informal, to make finished, defunct, or dead. That's what Peter's talking about, and now little kids can play a game or fight each other and they say, you're a toast. They're getting that from Ghostbusters, whether they know it or not.
1: There's something strange in the neighborhood. So who are you going to call? Ghostbusters! Each sold separately. Have no fear. Thank you, Seth, and Spangler are here. So are these ghosts. Ah! They've got Ectoplasm! We've been cool! Now what? Stay Puff Marshmallow Man! Let's show this pile of dessert who's boss! Activating Chrono We ain't afraid of no ghost! Peter Venkman, Ectoplasm, Stay Puff Marshmallow Man, and other figures each sold separately. Ghostbusters, new from Kenner. Ghostbusters. I ain't of no ghost Blusters. No yes, we're back. I ain't
0: the Ghostbusters are back in theaters, and to celebrate, you can get Ghostbusters 2 items.
1: Have we all gone mad? I guess so, Pete, because that's not all.
0: Why not? You can show support for this podcast, and even get a great-looking No Ghost piece logo and 10 tops trading cards. Check out patreon.com slash Ross May Items available while they last. Thanks, and enjoy the podcast. Ooh, this is a marathon. Our last subject of the day class, math. I know, I know, I want to go out for recess too. Hold on here. Just before we get to the box office, let's talk percentages. Because I find this stuff fascinating, and not a lot of other fans are really aware of it. In his book, Who is Michael Ovitz? Ovitz stated he got Ivan Reitman, Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, and Harold Ramis collectively a 30% cut of Ghostbusters. That's unequal shares of that 30, by the way. But, Mike Ovitz arranged this package deal, of course. CAA, Creative Artists Agency, takes 10% of what those guys earn. 10% of 30 is 3%. Following me, class? So the guys are down to 27, but CAA has 3. Then there's Bernie Brillstein, the man who lucked out with the $1 deal. He owned 10 to 25% off their cut as well. Let's make it a clean 2%. Here's how Ghostbusters breaks down, then. 70% is owned by Columbia Pictures, so Sony Pictures today. Around 25% goes to Ivan Reitman, Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, and the estate of Harold Ramis. 3% to this day goes to CAA, whether the company has any involvement with Ghostbusters or not. And around 2% used to go to Bernie Brillstein... But Warner Brothers purchased his shares, so now that 2% goes to Warner Brothers. Listen to my extra episode on Brillstein and Ovitz to learn how that happened. That's the business of Ghostbusters. With the caveat that deals might have been updated since then, but still, straight from Bernie Brillstein and Mike Ovitz, this is how things stand on the property. This gives greater context to... See, for years, we were all waiting for a Ghostbusters 3. And there are other factors involved than just percentages, but it does give you an idea how Columbia Pictures could be a little less enthusiastic than you'd first expect to do more sequels. The numbers get even worse for Columbia, actually. See, the principal talent's cut, along with CAA and Warner Brothers' smaller cuts, are based off a movie's gross. When you read the original Ghostbusters films had earned almost $300 million today, these parties have received 30% off that number. But that's not true for Columbia's 70%. For Columbia, you have to factor in production cost of the movie, advertising, and movie theaters take. That last one, what theaters earn for each ticket sold, I don't know about the 1980s, but in just looking at lots of sources online, today in North America, a cinema takes 40-45% to of each ticket sold. Those percentages are different across the globe, by the way. This is looking less and less profitable for Columbia Pictures if they want to make a new movie. That's why if you look at the numbers on, say, the 2016 Ghostbusters film, which I am not ragging on, by the way, but if you look at that 2016 movie, it looks like it made a nice little net profit of, you know, maybe $85 million. Hey, $85 million sounds good to me. But factor in that 30% off the gross, and let's be conservative and say 40% to movie cinemas, and we haven't even talked about the advertising budget yet, then yeah, Columbia Pictures lost money on that movie. Now, maybe I'm overlooking something contractual. For instance, while that 30% for the original talent is still gross, maybe it's conditional on something we're unaware of, yada yada legalese, my point still stands, despite Ghostbusters being a famous, well-loved property, it's more difficult than you might realize to turn a profit on its potential sequels. And we have another film series from Columbia Pictures to use as a comparison. <clears throat> Get me movie pictures of Spider-Man. Thank you, J. Jonah Jameson. My understanding is that when they make a Spider-Man movie, a character they do not own, remember. But when Columbia makes a Spidey movie, they only need to give five percent to Disney. Compare that to the thirty percent they're already losing on Ghostbusters out of the gate. And hey, I want to be clear. Ivan and his colleagues deserve big paychecks for Ghostbusters. They made it happen. I just want to give a clearer picture on what happened back in the day and how finances break down every time there's a new Ghostbusters movie. Heck, even a new Ghostbusters toy. If you spend $10 on a toy, well, there's manufacturing and shipping and retail costs. So it's not like Ivan Reitman gets $2.50 from your $10 bill. But you get my point. Yeah, he actually does get some of the money for all the Ghostbusters stuff we've purchased over the years. Moving away from the back end, let's talk about how Ghostbusters performed at the box office. A heads up that I'm working with the website Box Office Mojo. Ghostbusters was released in North America on June 8th, 1984, and was the number one movie for weeks and weeks. But there were two other smash hits in 1984. Debuting May 23rd, you had Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And all the way at the tail end of the year, on December 5th, we had the almost Ghostbuster, Eddie Murphy, and Beverly Hills Cop. So, if this is a three-way race, who won? First, domestic. Which, hey, I discovered is defined as the United States and Canada. Rather rude to leave out Mexico. But okay. Domestically, during first runs, Beverly Hills Cop wins it by a nose at almost $235 million. Ghostbusters had $229 million when it left theaters in January of 85. I guess if you really want to split hairs, you can say that Ghostbusters earned more money in the year of 1984, of course because Beverly Hills Cop only had December to work with and really earned most of its money in the year of 1985. Ah, 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 but check this out. Ghostbusters came back for a return engagement as early as August and September of 85, and already added another 9 million right there. Ghostbusters has been re released periodically since then, and in theaters, not home releases or anything, but on theater screens, Ghostbusters today has earned $243 million domestically. So, how do you want to slice this, Ghostbusters fans? Seriously, We should accept that Beverly Hills Cop earned more money in its original run. Eddie Murphy made the right call taking the deal with Paramount. And if I might get political for a moment here, have you ever heard all that Hollywood industry chatter about executives not funding movies with black leads? Well, I'm not racist, but you see audiences around the world aren't as receptive. B.S. Hypothetical Hollywood executive. Not only was Beverly Hills Cop a huge hit domestically, it beat Ghostbusters internationally. Hollywood should have been looking at this data from as early as the mid-80s. Now it's three decades later, and Black Panther has already come and gone. Forget supposed political correctness agendas for any jerks out there. There's big profits just waiting to be scooped up if you have charismatic, diverse leads. And, I don't know, I guess this is being turned around, but I'm just saying, 1980s, Beverly Hills Cop was a huge hit in North America and abroad. It shouldn't have taken three decades for Hollywood to slowly figure out this lesson. Okay, back to the numbers, I guess. Beverly Hills Cop takes an early lead with the best domestic showing in its first run. But Ghostbusters comes back with more engagements as early as August and September of 85, and in 2020 sits at $243 million. Today, Ghostbusters is the most profitable 1984 movie domestically. In fact, guess what? During the summer of 2020, you know, during the COVID pandemic, Ghostbusters returned yet again to drive-in movie screens. In July of 2020, Ghostbusters was once again the number one movie in North America. How about that? It earned a little over half a million dollars this year. That's pretty good. So it's in a rarefied club of being the number one movie decades after its release. The only other one I can think of that returned and got to be number one again would be the Star Wars special editions in the late 90s. But that was a 20 years gap instead of 36. Plus you could make the distinction that those special editions had been altered while Ghostbusters remained the original film. So where are we? Beverly Hills Cop wins for the first run domestically. Ghostbusters wins domestically if you include return engagements. And worldwide now, the winner is, drumroll, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Wow. The bronze winner domestically, it was probably seen as the gambler's safest bet going into 1984. Temple of Doom really cleaned up worldwide and earned $333 million across the globe. Beverly Hills Cop wins the international silver with $316 million, and Ghostbusters earned $296 million. You know, not the tightest race in the world, but not so far off either. I mean, in movie theaters, Ghostbusters has earned just shy of 89% of Temple of Doom's total. All of these numbers, which frankly really brings us to the fact that you can earn a lot of money in ancillary capacities. Ghostbusters now has toys and soundtracks and cartoon shows, I don't know if Ghostbusters as a whole has been more profitable than Indiana Jones as a whole not in the movies, certainly, but Ghostbusters and everything spinning out of it has certainly been more profitable up against just Temple of Doom on its own or Beverly Hills Cop. Hey, have we covered everything? This is what I do with my students. Okay, so we found a connection between H.P. Lovecraft and Ghostbusters, what with architecture that can reach into other dimensions and extra-dimensional horrors that'll come and stomp on us. We've covered music. Again, listen to the soundtrack show from 2018 to hear two episodes on Ghostbusters. It's good further listening. There's the marketing campaign, and I'm really impressed by the teaser poster that's just the logo. It inspired Batman and Jurassic Park's posters. They're here to save the world. That's a joke on Poltergeist. I say Dan Eckroyd likes to take names and numbers and just alter them slightly, and not present them head-on. Oh, and you can slime someone now. Again, remember that's a little bit revolutionary, because you can't juice someone. Unless, you know, you're killing them, I guess. Slime's going to be popular for the next decade, and listeners, you're all toast. Thanks for listening. I'm feeling very close now. We're almost there. Come back and we'll have some fun covering the movie together. I'm Vince Clortho, Volga Sildrohar, Lord of the Sebolia, I'm Ross May. I'm not here to toast you at all. You can reach me on Twitter at RossMayWriter or go to RossMayWriter.com to find my email there. We'll talk again soon, but for now we'd better split up. We can do more damage that way.